Thanks for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. As we've discussed extensively over the past several months at The Gathering, grace has the power to transform. When we resolve ourselves to respond to God's grace, that transformation occurs. However, how can we be sure that we've been transformed? How do we know the goal has been achieved? This past week at The Gathering, we discussed the process of transformation and what it takes to live the life of faith that grace is calling us toward. Mike Cook and the band covered songs from Death Cab for Cutie, David Ramirez, Matthew Price, and more. Let's have a listen.
I love, I love getting my tree and putting my tree up in my house. Come, darling, see the tree I chose. <laughs> Big bushy tree. Then you decorate it, it looks beautiful, doesn't it? And one of the main things you have to do when decorating a tree, as we all know, is you have to make sure that the plug is right at the back and the wire so you can't see it, so it doesn't ruin the aesthetic. The problem with this, of course, is that every night, you leave it on because it looks so lovely, then <laughs> you're halfway up the stairs and you stop, and you think, there could be a fire. <laughs> Which means that literally every night of December, before bed, I'm downstairs, under the tree. <laughs> 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 Something, can you help me? I can't reach the button. The button. <laughs> Good morning. Wow. Can you believe it's December already? Like it feels like July, except for the weather. Um, I mean, it snowed twice. That was unfortunate. The first time it was cute, right? Three hours of trick-or-treating in the snow. Like, only happens once every 30 years. But... You know, this week it was just a little bit too much, right? On top of that, every, every room I walk in, it feels like there's this chorus of coughs and sniffles as cough again in 2023 is upon us, right? Uh, it feels like some combination of the naps have been coughing for a month, including me. So if that happens this morning, I'm sorry. Uh, so happy December and Merry Christmas, right? Because that's here too, I guess. Uh, Thanksgiving has blown by, and now there's no longer any distractions between here and December 25th. Um, so it feels like everything has shifted in anticipation of Christmas. Uh, Bo this year has asked for an electric scooter from Santa, and that's a tough one because he's already lost five teeth this year, only one of which he's lost naturally. Um, so an electric scooter, I don't know if that's the adjustment we need in 2024 to correct that, but we'll see what Santa thinks, right? Um, last year, you might remember, Bo asked for a real sword um, for Christmas, which was quite a challenge. Uh, Santa ended up bringing him a great replica, a semi-hard foam sword that looked like the real thing, and it was a great compromise to having our son wield a blade around the house. We thought we had found a win, um, but sure enough, on that morning, Bo stumbles out of his room and there it is, his Excalibur displayed on the couch, and he runs up to it and he snags it with this giant smile. But you know what the first thing he said was? This isn't real. <laughs> you can't win them all, right? Um, that was 68 seconds into Christmas morning, and all you can really do is laugh, right? Uh, as parents, we work really, really hard to make Christmas a special and magical day for our kids, but like so many things, in parenting, there never seems to be a clear affirmation that we're doing it the right way. Um, which isn't that just how life is, right? Isn't that a perfect anecdote for living? We spend so much time and energy trying to succeed or even just not to fail, but often there's little confirmation that we're doing living right. And then to make it worse, there are, there's different definitions or dare I say opinions to what success looked like right? Allie and I debate quite often. We have different perspectives on most things, which in many ways makes us a strong partner, part, makes us strong partners, but we've learned how to compromise pretty well over the last 12 years. But it can get messy, not unlike this. But don't you take the easy way out. What easy way? There is no easy way. No matter what I do, somebody gets hurt. Would you stop thinking about what everyone wants? Stop thinking about what I want, what he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? 
It's not that simple. What it's do you want? What do you want? I have to go. What do you want? All right. It's usually the case, uh, except in this scenario, I'm Rachel McAdams. Um, and I know that because it's been very, made very clear to me that I am not Ryan Gosling. Um, <laughs> <coughs> excuse me. contentions that Allie and I come back to often is, is in fact about church. We've had different perspectives on church and its purpose for, for most of our relationship together. And like, like most, I assume Allie is just unsatisfied with questions, right? She's not keen on the ambiguous, but I relish in the fact that faith and questions about life are not that simple. Allie wants to know, okay, now what? God, what do you want? What is the goal? What is the objective? I get that grace can change everything. I know what it looks like when it does change everything. I get that I need to resolve to respond to that grace. But God, what do you want from me? What do I have to do? And I believe this stems from an innate human desire to have an objective, to have a mission or a goal. We want to know and understand the goal and clearly understand what success looks like within that goal. For instance, this is why I prefer to <coughs> excuse me. This is why I prefer to eat out over cooking at home. Right? I want to go to Chili's and order my Cajun chicken pasta and know that it will taste exactly the same every time. And then I want to leave without cleaning up after myself like the barbarian that I desire to be, right? But if every time I was craving some Cajun chicken pasta, I had to go through the process of buying the chicken and seasoning it and heating the oil and frying it and then deep frying the French fries, plating the meal, making sure that the garlic bread is this perfect shade of brown, right? And, and, and completing the work of art that is the Cajun chicken pasta from Chili's. All that, and then if that wasn't hard enough, I'd have to clean up afterwards, right? Which, no thanks, I will take the menu and the free, meal, free refills every time, right? But that's because we do prefer to have an objective over a process. I want X, Y, or Z now. So tell me the fastest, easiest, most efficient path to gaining that. I used to see this, in all, I used to see this all the time with my friends when I was leading Young Life. Um, they would come up and they would ask, Paul, what is, what is trigonometry and proper sentence structure and the periodic table of elements, what does that have to do with real life? And I still don't know. Um, <laughs> but they ask these questions because they see these things, right? They see complex math and complete sentences and the density of radon all as obstacles to their ultimate objective, right? Gain independence and freedom and autonomy. The objective of a high school student is to become an adult, but they don't see the seemingly trivial tasks and, and subjects as part of the great process of becoming an adult, because it's not that simple, right? Perhaps your story is similar to mine. I grew up believing that salvation was an objective. It was a life insurance policy, and all I had to do was ask, and I would gain eternal life and avoid eternal damnation. I was five years old, first time I heard that story. The Sunday school teacher told us about a place called heaven where we would go when we died. 
I was told that this place was bright and beautiful, where we would spend forever singing worship songs with Jesus, which for a five-year-old sounded miserable. Um, I, I did not like going to adult church. I did not like going to church with my parents and singing those songs. Um, and so that was, that was not the preferred option until I heard the alternative, right? That same Sunday school teacher <laughs> shared with us five-year-olds about a place called hell where it was always hot and we would spend forever in pain and torture with flames licking against our skin and the devil keeping us in constant torment. I'll take the singing. <laughs> we were told that, that this is where we would go if we didn't say a certain prayer and invite Jesus into our heart. And so that night I grabbed my mom, terrified, and I had her pray with me kneeling at the edge of our bed and I asked Jesus into my heart. I checked that box. I was saved. Mission accomplished. And as much as I hated singing, at least I wouldn't have to go to hell. That was my process as a five-year-old because it's what I was taught. I was told that salvation was an objective. Pray this prayer and get this reward. However, since I prayed that prayer, I've been discovering that salvation in the life of faith is, is much more than that simple but is it instead a process of becoming, a process of becoming the person that we were always intended to become? Now, if I was in the audience and I had heard someone say that, salvation in the life of faith is so much more than a simple prayer. It's a process of becoming the person you were always intended to be. If I heard someone say that this morning, I would, my first thought would be, oh, how wise. Second thought would be, if I step back, I would say that's all well and good, Yes, I get it, process over objective, journey over the destination, but, but what does that mean? What is this process? Tell me what I have to do, right? That, that innate human nature is still calling out, like, just, just give me the plan, show me the map, right? And it's not that simple. But it's only fair that we give it a shot. And so this morning, I want to expound on that process um, of the life of faith, or as Mike put it, how do we... How do we resolve ourselves to respond to grace? What is that process? Now, for some of us, perhaps this will be nothing new. Maybe there will be little for you to take away this morning, and that's all right. I admit that much of what I have to say this morning, we've reviewed here at Storyline a number of times, right? This might be Storyline 101. But for some, this could be new. Maybe your faith journey is just beginning, and you're still trying to figure all this out. Maybe this is your first time at Storyline and you're just really confused about what all this is, right? Why are we sitting in the dark listening to Death Cab for Cutie, right? What is all this? Or perhaps some of this makes you really uncomfortable, right? Perhaps you've heard it said differently. Perhaps it defies the tradition that you grew up with. And maybe you think I'm wrong. All of those perspectives are important. All of them are important and they can add to this conversation. Because... And now I'm, I'm going to give away the end a little bit here before we get into it. The answer to all this is that the mission and the objective of the life of faith is the process. That is the mission. The mission is the process. It's not some static or perfect thing. It's an ongoing movement of grace and joy and love that's moving through the world. And you are the vessel that God wants to use to get that job done. Now, I'm not an expert, nor do I want to be, 
So please don't take this as Paul or anyone who takes this stage has all the answers, right? I'm not here, I'm not going to stand up here and pretend like I do. I do, however, have some observations. Um, And so that's where I would like to go this morning. And so if you've been at Storyline before, even if last week was your first week, I guarantee you've heard this before. There's nothing you can do to get God on your side. He's already on your side. That might be our thesis statement here at Storyline. Uh, This is where the life of faith begins, right? The understanding that salvation is not a conditional contract, right? There's no quid pro quo within the life of faith. The first passage of the Bible we see is, is the first proof of this idea, right? Genesis 1 sets the stage for the entire rest of the Bible. It lays out the purpose and the meaning of humanity, and it gives us our first glimpse at what it means to be human. But to better understand <coughs> that idea, that there's nothing we can do to get God on our side, we have to start right here in this first chapter of this really big book. And what we find is this first chapter, it's a poem. It's a poem about how all things come into being. And in the first five words we hear, in the beginning, God created. Those are the first words of the Bible, and we are giving a critical image of who God is. He's a creator, right? He creates. Within the Christian faith, there's this universal understanding of an attribute of God known as, Trini- as the Trinity, right? This is, in essence, the understanding that God is three unique persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that make up one singular God, right? It is, in essence, the Trinity who is God. It's three unique, independent persons that form one God. And that's really confusing. Um, The best analogy I've heard to help us understand the Trinity is that of a chord on a piano. Um, Each key on a piano's keyboard is its own unique note. But when it's played in combination with other keys, they make a chord, right? The perfect combination of notes to achieve a specific harmonic tone. And that's where music is made, right? It's in the collaboration of those notes coming together that make one note that we hear. God, (coughs) as the Trinity, is similar. One chord of notes perfectly combined to make beautiful music, right? Yeah, that's not entirely clear. The mystery of the Trinity has stumbled the greatest of theological minds for ages. But if we can believe in that mystery, we can be comfortable with that mystery, that God in his substance is three persons in one, then this first observation that there's nothing we can do to get God on our side begins to make so much more sense. You see, if God is made complete, if he is made whole by the community of these three persons, then God must be joyful in that completeness, right? When he's together, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it is joy that, that arrives on that scene, right? He has, in his, he has in his community of the Trinity joy. Think about your closest friends, the people in your life that, that bring you the most joy, that mean the most to you. I think of my brothers, Jay and Luke. They're not my actual brothers, but there truly isn't a better word that I could use to describe them. Um, there isn't a word that I could more quickly convey who they are to me. And when the three of us are together, uh, the only word to describe those moments is joy. 
the memories and experiences that we've shared over the course of our lives together, the better part of 30 years, it's created a connection between us that's incomparable to any other community that I've been a part of. And I have to imagine that if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are anything like J. Luke and I, that the amount of joy within that space must be overwhelming. Right? And it's from that space that God creates. It's from His joy that defines His nature. His completeness in His community. And in His community, there is joy. And what do we know about joy? It's only truly joy when it is shared. So God creates that joy so that joy can be shared. We are the products of God's joyful jubilation. He is complete in His nature and therefore needs nothing from us. His only purpose for us is to share His joy with us. He's on our side because we are His joyful creation. We are the fingerprinting on the fridge. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to change God's mind about us. And my friends, this could be the single most important thing for us to understand when it comes to the life of faith. If this is truly a process of becoming the person that we were always intended to be, it starts here. That we are the products of God's joy. And our, and our participation in this life of faith does not change God's mind about us. It changes our mind about God. And as our mind is transformed, so is our soul. Which brings me to my second observation, is that you are not a bull, you are a hose. And I mean that in the kindest way possible. <laughs> Let me explain. I grew up in the North American Protestant megachurch movement, and what I learned by participating in that tradition was that I was a bull. I was a vessel that needed to be filled. And I was only when I was full that I could then give and serve and engage, right? I had to get myself right before I could focus outward. I had to read my Bible. I had to pray more, sing louder, give more money, go to more Sunday school classes in order to fill myself up. But here's the issue. Each Sunday, I would walk away from church not feeling more full, but feeling as if the brim of my bowl was just getting higher. As if I was going to have to do more in order to get full or to get fed before I could act. I was taught that I could only give out of my excess, but I could neither ever achieve that excess. But over the past decade, I've, I've begun to realize that I had been viewing my relationship with God all wrong. That metaphor wasn't working for me, and it's when I began seeing my life not as a bull, but as a hose, that my life began to take shape. My life of faith began to take shape, if you will. What do we know about a hose, right? What can we, if you can imagine a hose, when it's connected to the source, water flows through it and out of it continually. It's a constant state of flowing. There's no filling, it's just flowing. Our life, <clears throat> our life when we say yes to faith looks no different. As soon as we realize that we are the product of God's joy, the source, then our only response to that realization is to be an outpouring of joy into the world. There's no filling required, but instead the process of remaining connected, 
so that the joy of God can move through us and into the world. Which leads us to observation number three. The life of faith is not a list of rules and regulations. Today we're talking about pre-meal prayer. Very confusing <coughs> subject. A lot of people don't know when to pray, what to pray for, how to pray, who prays. Hey, do you want me to, should I pray? You want to, should we pray? I don't know if, all very confusing. We're going to cover it all today. Let's get started. Chips and salsa. Sometimes they bring it to the table before you're even seated. There's no need to pray for that. Lots of people wonder about appetizers. Do you pray for them? Do you not pray for them? No prayer is necessary for an appetizer if you have entrees coming out later. Salad, that is the most confusing thing on the prayer continuum. If it's a side salad or an appetizer salad, no need for prayer there. Now, if it's a main course salad or you're bringing it out with the rest of everyone else's meal, that then is gonna require some kind of prayer. But I put that kind of in a separate category. For the most part, when you're thinking about salads, just remember this, if it requires dressing, it doesn't require a blessing. Do I pray for coffee? No, are you a psychopath? No one wants to be next to the person at Starbucks that's praying over a latte, you weirdo. Soup, do you pray for soup? Do not pray for soup. It's only bowl-related soups. Anything smaller than that is always off the hook. I like to say if it comes in a cup, no need to lift up. Everyone knows if you order a hamburger, that's gonna require prayer. But if you order sliders, that does not require prayer. It's a little glitch in the system a lot of people are not aware of. Potato skins, no prayer. Baked potato, prayer. Ask any Bible-believing Christian, they're gonna have a different policy on fries. Some say never eat the fries. Some say eat as many as you want. Here's the policy on fries. Up to three fries is acceptable to eat prior to the prayer. That brings us to dessert. Always a very confusing situation. A lot of times people go out to a show, go to a movie, hey, should we grab some dessert afterward? Yeah, let me get the creme brulee, I love cheesecake. Ugh. You don't need to pray for that because you've already prayed for your meal earlier in the night. Do you hold hands before you pray? That depends on your situation. If it's a personal family gathering, some close-knit Bible study of some sort, sure, a hold hand wouldn't be uncomfortable. Now, if you're on a Tinder date, that might throw off the mood a little bit. Most of the confusion surrounding pre-meal prayer comes from when to actually pray. Let me just say, on behalf of waiters, all over the world. Please pray when your waiter is not there. There's nothing worse than a waiter coming out with two full arms of fajitas and you're over there mid-prayer at Jabez. Like, what are you doing? Last but certainly not least, who at the table volunteers to lead the prayer? Lots of people say the man should lead the prayer. Why is that? I'm not sure, it's 2018. Maybe we should get that rule adjusted at some point in the near future. A lot of people operate under the most spiritual person at the table. They're gonna be the one that should pray because that prayer is gonna be the most powerful and effective. So if you got obviously a pastor, a missionary, even a Christian blogger of some sort, shoot, even a volunteer youth pastor, that prayer is gonna be a little less effective, but it's still gonna qualify. If you're just an average person sitting at the table with obviously more spiritual people around you, you're kind of off the hook because I feel like God would be like, hey, how come y'all didn't bless this meal? You'd be like, I don't know, ask the pastor, he works for you. I always get asked to pray at Thanksgiving. Only they knew, right? <laughs> um, the great myth of faith, faith is that it's some kind of to-do list, right? With boxes to be checked in order to achieve the objective of salvation, right? Say this prayer, 
read this book, don't read this book, give this much money, attend on this day, volunteer this many hours, give more money, vote for this candidate, be dunked in this water, and believe this way. And, I'm, and I just am not sure that that's it. Right? That the life, of, the life of faith is a unique process for each of us as we discover our place in the presence of God's joy. Faith doesn't conform us to a specific pattern of robotic ritual, but it instead illuminates the gifts and talents and desires that ground our very being. Our faith should not change our passions, but direct them towards a path that allows us to use them in a way that brings love, grace, and joy into this world. One author puts it this way, faith does not tell us what we need to do. Faith tells us who we are. And when we know who we are, we know what we have to do. The life of faith tells us who we are. It's the process of becoming, the unique expression of God's joy that we were intended to be from the start. And so observation number four, we are called to love people, not control people. Right? Con consider our first three thoughts. The process then begins to take a little bit of shape. Right? If we are the products of God's joy, and we stay connected to that identity, adhering not to a list of rules and regulations, but instead being transformed into a distributor of love and joy, then our role begins to take a little bit of shape. Yet, when we do the opposite, when we see our lives as a bowl to be filled, a bowl to be filled sheepishly by obeying a list of specific rules, then our role quickly shifts to being the patrollers of truth, which in turn creates an in-group and an out-group. Those who are willing to follow are in, and everyone else is out. And this is where we mistake rightness with righteousness. Assuming that we have all the answers and our job is to get everyone else in line in the name of righteousness. Yet when we do that, when we surrender our opportunity to be good, drawing lines in the sand and creating division, that is not righteousness. If we truly believe that we are the product of God's joy, a unique expression of the love that He has for us, then we have to also believe that about other people. Because if it isn't true for everyone, then it isn't true for anyone. About five years ago, a coalition of predominant church leaders uh, many of which had national brands, and uh, many of which had, they had written books that I had read in seminary and, and for fun. Um, and uh, this letter came out into the Christian world. It was released in a very formal statement in regards to a controversial topic in society. And I'm purposely going to be vague because that topic is not important to our conversation this morning. But what is important to understand is that this coalition of leaders, they took an extra-biblical approach to a debatable topic. They planted their flag in the ground, they built a wall around it, and separated themselves from being a part of the conversation, declaring that anyone outside of these walls couldn't come in unless they saw the world exactly the same way. And this is not our role as followers of Jesus. We're called to love people, not be the rightness patrol. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's masterpiece. And if we can believe that about, about ourselves, then we have to believe it about other people, right? It's not true for us unless it's true for them. 
We have to believe that about our fellow humans and act accordingly, choosing goodness and love over rightness.
Thanks, Mike. Wow. It's an incredible song, right? Like, our rightness leaves us lonely. But maybe if we could set that aside and choose to be good, maybe then we could collectively love this world right again. I'm not saying you're not allowed to see the world a certain way. We all have our collective experiences that cause us to see the world through our own unique lens, and that is a beautiful thing. But all of us have that. And we're not all going to be the same, so let's stop pretending we are. This isn't about changing someone's mind, but aligning our own hearts to see the good and beautiful creation that the other was created with. We can be good together, and we can be good for each other if perhaps we tried, if we stopped trying to convince each other that we are right. That's not our job. This is a hard and messy and inconvenient and unreasonable process, but it's so good and it's so beautiful and it's what we are called to when we say yes to the life of faith. Which moves us to our next thought, which is that faith is not something you are born with or fall into. It's something you choose daily. One of my uh, favorite roles, one of the favorite things that I get to do here at Storyline is weddings. Um, and on multiple occasions, I've been asked to do some, some premarital counseling, which I always tell them is a terrible idea. Um, one of the things I have learned about the love that brings two people together um, is that it is certainly beautiful and it's certainly very good, but it is really, really hard. And it's not guaranteed. It takes work and pain and compromise, and often there will be moments where giving up feels like the only reasonable option. But what we say yes to at the wedding altar is not knowing that we will love the other person every day for eternity, but that we will love them every day and until eternity, whether we know it or not. That's the trick. That kind of love is a daily choice to wake up and love the other person without exception, with everything you have, whether it makes sense or not. And our life of faith is no different. When we say yes to following Jesus and begin the process of salvation, we're not saying yes to knowing whether we will always believe it, but saying yes to grace and peace and joy, whether we understand it or not. And that's because faith is not certainty, but it is the absence of it. You see, our doubt and our faith are connected. They're brothers and sisters. The absence of faith, or excuse me, the absence of doubt is not faith. It's fact. There's nothing easy about diving into what it means to believe in God and his goodness. We've merely scratched the surface this morning, and even something like understanding the Trinity should give us some pause on what exactly all of this means. 
But our faith is not meant to be a pathway to certainty. It's not an objective. It is, in fact, the absence of certainty. You see, when we surrender to certainty, we believe without recognizing our doubt. We no longer allow God to show us who we are, but we instead attempt to tell God who He is. And when faith becomes attached to one set of rules and traditions and rituals, when lines in the sand are drawn and the uniqueness of the human experience is removed, we no longer have faith. Faith requires doubt. They are not enemies, but they're best friends. And our doubt shapes our faith and drives us into a deeper understanding of who we are and consequently what our role is in the world. There's nothing black or white or objective about this faith. There should be, there should be tension that causes questions and doubts to rise up in us. It's a beautiful and healthy experience, and it leads us back to what we said yes to, to the life of faith in the first place. If I stood up here and told you that I wake up every single morning with this solid belief in all of this, I would be lying. Right? A man who was born of a virgin rose from the dead. Another man was swallowed by a fish and lived to tell about it. The same God who commands us to love each other commanded the entire genocide of a group of people. I'm supposed to love my neighbor and my enemy? Oh, this is not meant to be easy. It's not meant to be objective or black and white. It's when we embrace our doubt and, the, and persevere in love despite it that we truly find ourselves engaged in the process of salvation. Which brings me to my last thought this morning. If you've heard me say nothing else, I hope you hear this. And that is I'm confident that it is possible to love others and not love God. There are good people who are doing incredibly good things in this world despite an absence of faith in God. And I'm confident that is true. However, I'm equally confident that it is impossible to love God without loving others. When we are connected to the source, when we've accepted the gift of our identity, the gift of grace that has shown us who we are, as God's joyful creation, when we are made complete in our connection, in our communion with God, who looks at us as his masterpiece, when we've accepted the fullness of the life that he can't help but share with us, then our only response, in turn, is to share it. Right? The nature of joy is that it must be shared, it must be spread, and we are the ones to do the spreading. Our only job as the joyful creation of the divine is to love. You cannot love God without sharing his joy. His love in this world, this love that is inclusive and borderless and boundless and unconditional. When we accept that love, the only possible response is to love the same way. When God creates with joy and love and goodness, so will I. When we see Jesus deny his privilege and step out of what is comfortable and into what is unknown, our only response can be, so will I. When God stands up against oppression, when he heals the sick and feeds the hungry, brings water to the thirsty and community to the lonely, our only response should be, so will I. And when the God of the universe lays down his life for his creation, 
the sinner and the righteous, the Pharisee and the zealot, the rich and the poor, the Israelite and the Palestinian, the full and the hungry, the friend and the enemy, our only response is so will I.
Where you lost your life so I could find it here If you left the grave behind you so will I I could see your heart and everything you've done Every part designed in a work of art This is not easy stuff. It's messy and it's sticky and it's always difficult and it hurts and it doesn't always make sense. But the life of faith is so, so good. There's no better way that I've found to live in this world than to be rooted in the joy that comes from that which I was created. So may you find joy in exactly as you are exactly as the masterpiece that God created you to be. May you abandon the pursuit of excess and instead relish in exactly what you have, the passions, the gifts, the perfect imperfections that make you you and who you are. And may you overflow His love into this world. May you embrace your doubt as security in the fact that you are not God and nor do you have to be. And above all else, may you know that there is nothing you can do to get God on your side. Know that He looks at you with the same joy and jubilation from which you were created. He's on your side and there's nothing you can do about it. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen, friends. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Gathering from Storyline Church. Have a blessed week.